Hello, and welcome back to a new season of Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. We're grateful for the great feedback we've had about our two previous seasons. In this series, we're going to be asking our listeners for their thoughts on the technologies you think are underrated and overrated, and why. Please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Today, we're bringing you an interview with one of Silicon Valley's most successful business software entrepreneurs, someone who spotted a glaring need and stepped in to supply the solution. We look at our customers' phones and we look at our phones and we've got everything on there. And so more and more work is becoming this fragmented mess and they turn to Dropbox to help tie all that back together. That was Drew Houston, co-founder and chief executive of Dropbox, talking about his latest project. He came into the FT studio to tell me his story. I began by asking him how he caught the entrepreneurial bug. I started my first company when I was studying computer science at MIT, and I decided to take a leave of absence, either to study in France or to start a company. And I was one signature away from that exchange program, but decided to take a leave instead. And what I was excited by was the opportunity that was underserved, where American students and others have to take the SAT, and the structure of the test was changing, which created an opportunity for us, because all of the big 800-page books that we used to all suffer through and read to prepare for the test were, in a sense, obsolete. And so I teamed up with a former high school teacher of mine, and I pitched him on the idea that now that the test is changing, there's a window for us not only to teach the new test, but to move the course online. And so that was my first foray into the wild world of starting companies. And did you pitch that business to Y Combinator? I did, unsuccessfully. (laughs) And what did Sam Altman think about that now? Well, I think they were right. The criticisms included things like it wasn't a big enough market and maybe a few other things, which turned out to be correct. Fortunately, Y Combinator doesn't limit you in terms of the number of applications you have. And you also, I was reading, founded a poker bot as well. Tell us about that. Yes. So while I was working on Accolade, the SAT prep company, I found myself getting distracted here and there by some side projects, one of which was a poker bot. And I was fascinated because some MIT students, maybe 10 years prior to when I was there, had created this blackjack team where they were able to gain advantage against a casino and basically beat the house. And I saw, at least briefly, an opportunity to do something similar with poker, where I was fascinated with security and engineering and reverse engineering, and was able to wire up a poker bot to basically, instead of me having to lose my money online by playing poker, the bot would do that for me. (laughs) That's kind of what happened. (laughs) So not the best business proposition. Not the best proposition, but I was fascinated by the project. And one of the things that happened when I was working on the test prep company was I realized that I loved starting a company, but I wasn't really that passionate about standardized testing. And the poker bot was kind of a diversion from that and ended up being a call to pursue something that was more technically challenging. And um, then online poker went from kind of illegal in the U.S. to very illegal. And so that had put a stop to that. And then I also realized that poker bot was not really something that the world needed or was solving any of the grand challenges of humanity. And so it was the first side project of two side projects, the second of which was Dropbox. Okay, tell us the origin story of Dropbox. (laughs) Sure. Well, 
while working on Accolade, all of our crown jewels, all of our company information was on this little thumb drive because I needed to work across different computers. And the only problem with that was I kept losing it and I kept having to remember where it was and all the things we used to have to do. And so I was going to visit some friends in New York because I had just graduated from MIT and I was living in Boston at the time. But I wasn't sure if I could justify the trip over the weekend because there was all this work I had to do. But I thought that if I took the bus, then I would have many hours of uninterrupted time to get some work done. And so went through all the mental gymnastics to rationalize the trip and then raced onto the bus only to realize that once I sat down, I had forgotten my thumb drive, which meant that not only was I not going to get any work done, but these were the days, this was end of 2006, this was before the iPhone, so these are the the times when, when you didn't have anything to do, like you really didn't have anything to do. And it's not like the Chinatown bus <laughs> had Wi-Fi. So I was just sitting there just so angry at myself and so frustrated. And I decided I never wanted to have this problem again. I opened up the editor and started writing some code, having no idea what it would turn into. Mm-hmm. So Dropbox's origin was really to solve a very practical business purpose. How did you get a sense of how you could scale the business or how big it could become? Well, in the beginning, I really had a target audience of one. I just wanted to never have to deal with flash drives or emailing myself files or things like that again. But as it evolved, it was clear that this was a problem that others would have. And at a minimum, it wasn't clear whether this would be a mass market problem. And that really wasn't what I was focused on. I just thought it would be something really interesting and fun to build. And it was clear that there were some folks in the technical audience who did have multiple computers or multiple platforms for whom this would be an issue. But the big thing that changed in 2007 was the launch of the iPhone. And so suddenly this went from a very niche problem in terms of working across multiple computers to a problem that soon billions of people would have. Because suddenly many people had two computers. They had their smartphone and they had their PC. So we were at the right place at the right time. And you repitched to Y Combinator at that time, and this time you got accepted. So you were incubated, as it were, and trying to build out the business. How quickly did you grow from there? Well, it was a pretty fast ramp from the first idea. So I applied to Y Combinator again, and they told me I needed to find a co-founder. So that was a good suggestion, but it was a problem for me because the application deadline was like two weeks away. And so fortunately, I managed to meet a classmate of mine named Arash, who was also studying computer science at MIT. But the only problem that he had was he wasn't done with school. So what happened was we met, we were introduced by a mutual friend named Kyle, who is a very successful founder in his own right. So he started Twitch and Cruise, both of which have become very successful companies. But Kyle and Arash were floor mates at their dorm at MIT. And so he introduced the two of us. And we were happily accepted into Y Combinator. Actually, on the day we got in, we came back to our rental car and found that both of our laptops had been stolen. And so we were, (laughs) turns out, one of our first case studies in why you need something like Dropbox. And fortunately, all the important information was in our Dropboxes, so we didn't actually lose anything. Right. And you've now grown to about 500 million users. Who are your prime users? Are they individuals, businesses? How is it split? All of the above. So Dropbox has certainly reached hundreds of millions of people, and our focus is business customers. So we have over 11.5 million paying subscribers, so that's a number we pay a lot of attention to. 
80% of whom are using Dropbox for work. And so we have both individual subscribers and we have corporate subscribers. So we have over 300,000 paying businesses using the business version of Dropbox. Mm -hmm. And how are you migrating the non-paying users into paying users? Well, there are a few different ways or a few different needs that our users have. So the oldest one is needing more space. So you get a limited amount of free space with your Dropbox. And once you hit a certain threshold, you can buy an individual or team subscription. The other is if you're using Dropbox at work, there's a lot of features that we have both in our individual and business plans. And so they include better sharing features, certainly a lot of security features. And often we find that the administrative part is an important reason for people to upgrade to the corporate version of Dropbox. When I was reading your commencement address that you gave to MIT, you said that building Dropbox was the most exciting, interesting, and fulfilling experience of your life. I can understand that. But you also said it was the most humiliating, frustrating, and painful experience of your life too. Tell us more about the latter half of that. Uh, <laughs> what were the big challenges when you were building this business? Well, unfortunately, there's no button you can press that just makes things go on a smooth curve up and to the right. So challenges are part of the adventure of starting a company or really any kind of big endeavor. For me, and for most entrepreneurs, the first challenge you have is at some point you've never been a CEO before. So you have to learn on the job. And fortunately, this is a challenge that all CEOs face at some point because by definition, everybody is a first-time CEO at some point in their life. But the challenge really comes with how do you keep your personal growth curve ahead of the company's growth curve? And to me, what that meant was thinking about, all right, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, what's the company going to look like? What is it going to need from me? And then how am I going to get there? So and, how did you keep your personal growth curve ahead of the companies? By pushing myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> by, by being systematic about thinking through what do I need to learn today? So if you, if you map that out, or what do I need in a year, two years, five years from now? Or what does the company need from me? By the way, those answers will be pretty different, right? So in 2007, when we're starting the company and just doing Y Combinator, we didn't have any users. We didn't have really much of anything except for a prototype. And so it was clear that next year we would need to find users. And in a couple of years, we'd need to have a business model and some revenue. And in five years, we'd have to be scaled up a lot more. What you do for each of those challenges is pretty different. But to me, it was about being systematic about training myself. And so the most useful things that I did were to read a lot of books, What was the most important book to you? I love Andy Grove's books, and he's a personal hero of mine. So there's a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. Mm -hmm. If you talk about some of the pain, Andy talks about some of the challenges that Intel had as they were evolving their business and as the competitive landscape shifted. And a lot of those kinds of things are relevant for any tech company, and they were certainly relevant for us at different points. And then he also wrote a book called High Output Management, which is, to me, like maybe the best book on management ever written. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a book called uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, who's a friend of mine, and he's also a fan of Andy. It's a great book, isn't it? Um, That really gets to the heart of, I think there's no better book that talks about the personal experience of scaling a company. It certainly gets to the heart of the pain of being involved. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self knowing what you know now? Well, first, I would have some comfort in knowing that the CEO role is something that you can learn on the job. And I started out as an engineer, so I was lucky to start programming when I was a little kid. But by the time I got to high school and college, I didn't know a whole lot about business. And the more I learned, the less I realized I knew. So that can be pretty intimidating because you find yourself in all these situations where you need to be right about a lot of different things and the stakes are going up and up. 
And so when you get into Y Combinator, suddenly you feel a new sense of responsibility, but then you finish Y Combinator and you get venture investment and Sequoia Capital invested a million dollars in a 24-year-old and a 21-year-old. And you realize, okay, they're going to want that back. And so you find yourself constantly faced with new challenges and to recognize that that is not only normal, but necessary. In fact, if the sailing is too smooth, you're probably not going fast enough. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. One of the things you said in your address in 2013 was that you're the average of the five people you spend most of your time with, which I thought was fascinating. Are you very conscious about how you spend your time and what you learn from the people close to you? Yeah. So that's a quote from a guy named Jim Rohn. And I think it applies both literally and symbolically. So I have benefited a lot from having other friends who are starting companies. And you learn a lot, both from people who are kind of at the same stage as you and then people who are much further along. One of the things that allowed me to succeed in starting a company was first going to school with people like Arash and Kyle. And so quite literally, they were part of my circle. Kyle and Arash were in the same dorm, but I met Kyle through the Entrepreneurs Club at MIT. And I had a number of other friends at school who were starting companies. And so the reason it matters is because studies have shown that you have similar habits or you will end up being an average. It's more than just a saying. The way that dynamic works is you are both inspired by the people around you. And so you're pulled in a positive direction by seeing their experience. And then there's a healthy competition that arises. Arash looked at Kyle, who had moved out to California, dropped out of school, and kind of appeared to be living happily ever after. And all Arash saw was a bunch of homework for his computer science classes. I was having a similar experience. One of my friends, Adam, had started a company, moved out to California, was having a lot of success. And it felt like he was having a lot more success faster than I was with my test prep company. And I just think if I hadn't gone to school there, if I hadn't moved to San Francisco, all these different environments have a big impact on on what happens to you. Now, one of the downsides of becoming uh, very successful quickly as a business is that you then attract a lot more competition. So it's now quite evident that people like Microsoft and Google are moving very heavily into your space. How are you going to defy these gorillas that are entering your market? Well, just about everybody either is or has been competing in our space. And the way we'll handle it going forward is the way we've handled it in the past. So since I'd say 2011, just about every major internet company has launched some kind of competing product. And since then, we've added a billion dollars in revenue, and, and all of our progress has happened in that competitive environment. So in many ways, that's the only environment we've ever known, and so we've had good training. But what you need to focus on is making sure that your customers are happy. And that sounds obvious, but it's easy to take a more, I'd say, cartoon view of competition. And usually when you read articles, it's like, oh... Google launches a competing product, startup dies. And it rarely works exactly like that in practice. And what we found 
is that when you talk to your customers, you discover pretty quickly that nobody is solving their problems. And that was true back in 2011, and that's true today. And when we talk to our customers, we realize they have all these different challenges with tying together all these different cloud tools, and, and the world is a lot less tidy and organized than people think. And there's new problems that crop up all the time. What do you offer your customers that your competitors don't? What is your unique advantage over them? Well, historically, it's been the fact that we support every platform equally well. In the early days, people turned to Dropbox to help get their information on their iPhone or on their Windows PC or Android or wherever they needed to be. And today, what we find a lot of our customers struggling with is, unlike 10 years ago, it's not that people are just selecting one office suite or the other and staying within that realm. We find our customers are mixing and matching tools from everywhere. And so they'll use Excel for certain things, and they might use Google Docs for something else, and they might collaborate with another team using Dropbox. And we look at our customers' phones, and we look at our phones, and we got everything on there. And so more and more work is becoming this fragmented mess, and they turn to Dropbox to help tie all that back together. You provide about 500 million registered users in 180 countries real-time access to some 400 billion pieces of content, which is one heck of a lot of data. You initially built that on Amazon Web Services, I think I'm right in saying, and then you switched to creating your own data center storage infrastructure. Why did you do that? Well, we realized we're operating one of the largest cloud services in the world and that there would be a lot of benefits in running our own infrastructure there are numerous benefits. One of the obvious ones is cost and being able to take advantage of our scale and realize that when we're buying servers or hard drives, it's not like the other folks are getting a much better price than us and we're able to ride that cost curve down. And we're also able to tune to our specific workload. So when you're using Dropbox, you tend to be looking at stuff that you've been working on recently, tend not to be looking at something from 10 years ago. So there are cost efficiencies you can drive by segmenting hot and cold storage and things like that. And then there's also a performance benefit and flexibility that you can get, where as more and more of our workload shifts from storage to compute and things like machine learning become an increasingly important part of the Dropbox experience, being able to tune all parts of the stack is a big advantage when you look at it on a 10-year timeline instead of just thinking about the cost piece. And how are you going to build out the services? And in particular, could you talk about the collaboration apps market that you're developing? Sure. Well, we recognize that the experience of using technology at work has a lot of room for improvement. And when we watch our customers, they're constantly switching between all these different apps. And then work has become this incredibly fragmented and distracting experience. And that's a problem because when you think about what helps people perform at their best, it's when they can focus and it's when they have all the information they need in front of them. And when you think about the environment where people are working and when you realize that more and more people may go to an office but they're working out of a screen, that environment, that virtual environment, is in many ways the most important thing. And when you look at how that's designed and that experience, it's a mess. And so people suffer because they are constantly bombarded with information they don't need. It's impossible to find the information they do need. There's all these situations which are still surprising to me, such as it's easier to search all of human knowledge than my company's knowledge in 2018, if you think about it, because at home you have one search box, but at work you have 10 and growing every year. And so we see a big opportunity to simplify all that. And our goal is to get to a world where you open up your screen or your phone or your laptop and only the important stuff shows up and that we rein in 
a lot of the chaos that's emerged from all the new productivity platforms and tools. Now, last year, Dropbox lost $111 million, which is not unusual for a company at your stage of development. But how quickly are you going to move into profit and scale? Well, the trajectory is very positive, and we focus on free cash flow, and we turned free cash flow positive a couple of years ago and continue to improve on that dimension. So we're certainly focused on building a sustainable business and have been for a long time. And when we think about growth, we want to have a sustainable business, but we also want to invest in growth. So we'll be balancing growth and profitability going forward. Now, security in your kind of business is absolutely critical. How do you ensure the total integrity of the content? You did have a bit of a security issue in 2016, I think, when about 68 million old accounts were compromised, leading to a password reset. What do you do to ensure that your customers are fully confident in the data integrity? Well, it's critically important. And that 2016 issue is actually kind of a reverberation from 2012. In 2016, there was a database of emails and hashed and salted passwords that actually dated back to 2012. So they were old accounts. Old accounts, yeah. And you couldn't use them to log into any Dropbox accounts, but it was something that surfaced and had a cycle of press. But first, it starts with an understanding that this is the most important thing to our customers, and it's the most important thing to us. Our customers are entrusting us with their most important private information, either their personal information or their company's information. And it's the first thing that people learn about our culture, the importance of being worthy of trust. So you'll hear that phrase echo through the halls of Dropbox. And I think starting with a cultural foundation is where you need to begin. Now, fortunately, because of our scale, because we have hundreds of millions of registered users and we operate one of the largest cloud services in the world, we're able to make massive investments in security and proportionally much larger investments in security than just about any of our customers. The same way a bank is going to be able to invest more in security than you putting your cash under your mattress or something. And so building a great technical team, always being on the forefront of what's happening, making huge investments there, that's just the beginning. Why did you decide to go public? Well, we thought it was time and we were ready. And when I look at the iconic internet companies, they're all public companies. And so we were sure that we would be a public company someday. It was really just a matter of timing. And we had been, in many ways, operating like a public company for years before we actually decided to go public. And it was all the foundational work we did to do things like become cash flow positive in 2016 and continue to build the foundation and controls that you need to be a public company and so on. On the one hand, we had flexibility because we didn't need the money to operate the business. So we weren't going public to get operating capital but we felt that we were at a good balance of scale, growth, and, and profitability. Because, I mean, a lot of companies have remained private for a lot longer than they would have done, say, a decade ago. So is the balance now a lot more difficult to find? Or do you think the, the advantages of being a public company are still overwhelming? Well, companies are staying private for longer because they've been able to get some of the benefits that were originally reserved for the public markets. And so we and other companies were able to solve for our capital needs there's a lot of growth capital that flows to private companies, and we and other companies have been able to stay private for longer. That said, there are advantages of being a public company, and I find that our business model actually lends itself to having an easier time as a public company because we have a lot of elements that investors like, the stability, predictability, recurring revenue. So our difficulty level is proportionally lower than some others. How does it affect your life as a CEO? Are you under greater scrutiny? It's been surprisingly calm, actually. I would tell my team, and I still tell them, 
step one of building a great public company is building a great company. And so a lot of the getting the plumbing and foundation in place and a lot of the work that we did under the hood over the last couple of years made the IPO and our life as a public company a lot easier. We've just run an article in the FT by Mike Moritz, who is one of the partners in Sequoia, who invested in you. He was making the case that he thought the future of tech was in China, that Chinese companies were becoming unbelievably competitive and creating vast wealth unbelievably quickly. Do you think China is going to outstrip Silicon Valley? Well, first, there's no question that phenomenal companies have been created in China and really all over the world. Now, historically, internet companies in China and the internet companies in Silicon Valley have operated in separate markets. So you don't have a lot of examples of Silicon Valley companies being hugely successful in China or vice versa. Now, that may change. And I think over the last 10 years, there has been a sea change where you look at the list of most valuable internet companies, and many of them are in China. And so I think what Andy Grove would say is only the paranoid survive, and you always have to be earning your place in the world. And one of the critical things to ensure the competitiveness of Silicon Valley is surely the immigration issue. And you've been campaigning on this to make sure that the US is open to the best talents that you can find from around the world. How is that debate playing out, do you think? Well, it's been going on for a while. I look at Dropbox and my co-founder Arash is the son of Iranian immigrants. And I just think if they hadn't been allowed in the country, there would be no Dropbox. And that's historically been one of America's strengths is that we're a nation of immigrants. We're lucky enough, frankly, due to a lot of the work done in prior generations, to have America have a brand that attracts the best and brightest from around the world. And it's easy to take that for granted. And so a lot of us in tech have been advocating to have more sensible immigration policies, not just for the high skill piece, but more broadly. But certainly there's no question that it doesn't make a lot of sense to have immigration laws where we attract the best and brightest, we educate them, and then send them away to compete with us. It's as if other countries were writing our immigration laws. And so we think that's pretty silly. But at the same time, it's a tough legislative environment, to put it lightly. Have you lost recruits? Have you had people that you wanted to come and work at Dropbox in the US who you've been unable to recruit? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's common that there's a really bright student who is unable to get permission to work in the US. And sometimes you can work around it and station them in another country if you have an office there, but it's a big lost opportunity. Okay, we must end it there. But thank you so much, Drew. That was really fascinating. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, we're keen to hear your views, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and do let us know what you think about those overrated and underrated technologies. If you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, then take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.